I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. I can't tell you, good guys, what a pleasure it is to have Carl in the house and uh, how difficult it is to get him to come down to the house. Uh, he finally got me down here. What am I? Kettering, is it? No, don't Did say he... that. It's Barton Seagrave with right. Posh. Apparently. He's all right. He's shitting out on TV tonight. <laughs> he might be me shitting tonight, so he might wish well he stayed at home. <laughs> no, it won't. We're going to start right at the beginning, Carl, if I can, because I think that everybody here knows Carl Fogarty, the star of Carl Fogarty, but do you know very much about him? Because if you do, then I'm fucked. Because I've got to start right at the beginning, I think it will be the favourite part of it. At the beginning. So where were you born? Well, oh, this will loosen you up. Under a bush. Is that the old dog up against the wall? Yeah. So, where were you born? I was born in Blackburn, Lancashire. And uh, went to school there? I did, yeah. Uh, I'm still live there, still live in Blackburn. They won't let me leave, to be honest. So, he so, lives in a very posh part of Blackburn. Yeah, we kind of moved up a little bit. We went from the, the, the not-so-posh area to, uh, I guess, the posh area. The Ribble Valley is what I like to call it, is where I live. Um, but yeah, um, bought Blackburn born and bred and still, still there. I went to school there, went to work there. And uh, yeah, I grew up as uh, an annoying little kid who just loved bikes. My dad used to race. Uh, just as a kid, I was always around uh, motorcycles. But um, going to races like Croft and uh, sort of Aintree, Alton Park and uh, that kind of thing, sleeping around in the back of the van. And when you got a few more quid, uh, got a, you got a caravan. And that, obviously the TT was a big thing, really, for me. Dad, he did the TT. Every year, as a, as a kid, uh, I got to go to the TT from being sort of one year old to sixteen years old. Um, it was great. I got two weeks off school, which I fucking hated school, so it was it was great. Um, and all my childhood memories were at the TT. To be fair, all the sort of mischief you used to get in in the in the amusement arcades and Nicky Curley whirling out the vending machine in the hotel and stuff like that, as you did as as kids. And uh, yeah, so being brought up around bikes, it was something that I was wanting to do: race bikes. I think whenever you get brought up around as a kid. Chance are you going to want to do that as a as a hobby or as a profession? As it turned out for me, but yeah, was there money in the family? Because that's a, a modern thing, is it nowadays? You know, kids buy rides. They start when they're very very young and usually start in Spain. Was there money in the family in those days to sort of promote you to move you on? 
Um, not really. My dad worked really hard. He, um, him and his brother were just to clear out people's back backyards and all sorts. I earned a few quid to, to buy a truck and then then he got sort of a couple of warehouses and did haulage and storage and he, 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 he kind of, he did well for himself with that. He was through just sheer hard graft to be fair. Um, but he, he obviously helped me out to my, my first bike. Obviously my first bike was his, his Formula 2 Ducati, um, which I raced for a few races with an orange jacket on. Um, to um to start racing in uh, in 83 and uh yeah, that was fun i remember my first race uh got disqualified actually pretty second and uh got disqualified for using electric star i um i pulled the number out of the the hat entry number 36 it was it was like fucking hell, back row of the grid and uh my dad and all my family and stuff were on on the start and finish straight with all the vans on top of the vans nice Nice sunny day, and my grandma was there and everything. She used to come to watch us at Aintree, and Dad said, look, don't make it obvious on the start, just because you're using electric socks. I could never start this Ducati, never bump start it, was that small. And uh, as the guy lifted the flag up, I just pressed the button and just went through the fucking back row of the grid, right through into the lead, and apparently my dad and my family was going, oh, fuck's sake. And I was, so I was led into the first corner from being on the back row of the grid, and I was back to fourth, and I was on, on the grass and on the, back on the tarmac. I was riding a bit dangerously to be fair. I didn't care. When did I, that I, change? Yeah. So back to fourth, and I finished second. I was like really pleased. I'd finished second my first ever race. You know, orange jacket on against all these guys who'd been racing for sort of a few years and that. And then yeah, I got disqualified. I was heartbroken to be fair because I made it that obvious that I'd use electric star that I got disqualified in my first uh, my first ever race. Yeah. Dad was a racer. And quite good, quite, quite yeah, handy as a national reason. Um, it was, yeah. He never had, you know, decent bikes, to be fair, because, like I said, he didn't really have any money. Um, we always had second-hand bikes. And by the time his business started doing well, he was in his early 30s, and he bought an RG500 when they first came out in 1990, sorry, 1977. And uh, had a great season that year. really did really well. He, he did the TT, um, was running second in the TT uh, in, the, in the senior race, and a, a storm went through the radiator, and... That was his race over, and he finished second in the classic race um, behind Joey Dunlop. Obviously, he was a bit of a legend around the TT. So, to say my dad came second behind Joey, it's, it's like no main feat, really, to be fair. But, um, yeah, he was he was decent, decent rider. He won the Cock of the North at Scarborough, uh, Southern 100. He won, the, won, that, he won that race. He, he kind of had good success on the roads, it seemed to be, really. At Northwest 200, he finished second behind Charlie Williams and that. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, he was, uh, he, was a, he was a decent rider to me. Never as good as me, like, but he was, well, he was, he was all right. He was one of the nicest guys in racing. He wasn't like me as well. I was well, a horrible bastard I was, to be fair. <laughs> but do you think your dad could see that in you and he kind of rolled over early? Because he was riding. He was still racing when you were riding. Yeah, well, he started. He, sorry, his last year was... Uh, come here, it's fucking froth everywhere. Um, <laughs> in 1983 was his last ever season of racing. And um, that was my first ever season. I remember I did one race against him at Aintree in the 500 race, open class. He, he won the race on his RG500. I was like 11th on the, on this Ducati. But uh, yeah, he's, um, yeah, he, he kind of just did that one season when I did my last... I was like 18 in the July of 83. So then I was old enough to go road racing, which I think at that time it was 18. But then I remember Alan Carnes was racing. Yeah. So maybe I'd worked out the years wrong. You could probably race at 16. But I was doing, doing schoolboy motocross at 16. So It always struck me when I was around the paddock that it was a very competitive family. I mean, Georgina, your sister. I always I felt a bit sorry for her because she always seemed to be on the other side of things. Everybody was behind you for racing and the like. I mean, was it a competitive family? Was it when you got home, were you all arguing? 
Uh, no, not really. Um, no, she was. Um, she wasn't. I don't know. She still wanted to pay the arse, To be honest, my sister is. Um, but yeah, she just went along with the flow. Really, to be fair, my mum was never really that competitive. My dad was when, it, when I played him at squash or a domino or something like that. He hated losing at domino. dominoes. He couldn't stand losing dominoes. He still like playing at dominoes now. He gets really pissed off if he don't win at dominoes. Yeah. Um, but um, but when he was racing, he was he was never that sort of cutthroat, you know, really wanting to win sort of thing. He just loved his racing, to be fair. Um, it was a hobby for him. Um, but yeah, playing squash with him and something like that, he was really wanting to win. It was pretty competitive then. So when did you realise at that early age, when did you realise how competitive you were and how much it meant to you? Very early. I would just, I'd, I would tell anybody that would listen to me at 12 years old before I even raced a motorbike that I was going to be world champion. You know, I was... I was that confident or, or cocky or, or whatever. I, don't, I mean, I don't even know if I actually believed in myself. Um, I think I just said it because it sounded funny or sounded cool to say it, but I think I actually did believe it, to be fair. I think I did, and I, I just believed I was going to be world champion. And uh, so that was it, really. Um, yeah. What sparked... I mean, what was... Just, was there an incident that, that made you think, I can do this, I can make this? It's just winning that first race at Aintree. It, you know, when you when I first did the race, I was like, oh, I didn't come last, you know what I mean? And then, uh, but I, I remember when I did school by motocross, I was never really that aggressive or determined for some reason. Maybe I knew that I was never going to be good enough at it at motocross, to be fair. And I was happy just to get a trophy finishing the top sort of eight or something like that, you know. But when I went to road racing, that first ever race, I really was determined to win it. I, that, that determination and you know, will to, to win was, was there right from the first go when I first raced, you know, and uh, when I won my first race the year after on the 250, then it was like winning, winning my first national race, I wanted to win that, and then the first international race, and then obviously the, the TT and things like that, and I just so wanted to win so badly, um, I was so competitive, um, I just hated finishing second, I hated losing, and it became, you know, I kind of, uh, I was kind of famous for it really, even like the crowd and the media expected it at the end, you know, the pressure I was under to win. Um, it came from myself, but because I said I was going to win, I was going to do this, I was going to do that, and, you know, the, the fans, everybody kind of expected it, really, so it, was, uh, it wasn't easy being, but he living in my head, to be fair. And I was just about to get there, because mentally that must have been very, very demanding. Was there a sort of personality defect you think you had for, for this kind of thing? Was it, was it overly aggressive? Or was there somebody you aimed at and thought, I want to be him or her or whatever? It was, no, I wasn't really looking up to anybody that way. I just wanted to win the races. And you know, the more I won, the more I had to win. And the more I was thinking about that next race, um, it just became an obsession at the end. In 99 sort of thing, was, I felt under more pressure than ever. And I, I'd had so much success into, up to 99. But it never got any easier. You know, you think oh, I've maybe relaxed a bit and enjoyed the racing, but I never enjoyed racing, to be fair. Not like someone like James Whittam enjoyed racing. He loved it. Um, it was just the, the, the winning for me was... I didn't even like racing bikes. I just knew I was good at it. I just wanted to win and, and, and win at all costs, you know. And uh, it didn't make me easy to be around, to be fair, especially for those around close to me. Yeah. Did you have any help? Was there any mental health situation there? Because it's something I've never asked you before. No. In fact, I've known you nothing, for so long. No, I mean, mental health didn't, didn't exist, to be honest, back in sort of 30... <laughs> 35 years ago, whatever. Um, I can't, it does now. I mean, I suffer it from it now a little bit with anxiety and depression and whatnot. I think most people do, to be fair. It's, um, it is how it is. It's the, the way your life is now. It's so fast. Um, but no, it didn't really exist. I, I was just mentally really, really strong, to be fair. Back in the day, I would say 
all sorts of stuff and, and generally backing up. I look back now, stuff I said, I think, you might get your mouth shut, for fuck's sake, just <laughs> get on the, on the bike and ride instead of putting so much pressure on yourself. But it was just the way I was. My makeup was, was that way. Just to have a go at others who got close to beating me and kind of diss them or diss their bikes or whatever, you know. And uh, I mean, you guys loved it at Sky. It was, you know, Sky Sports made sort of me as a name, made me a household name, and made the sport a household name, World Superbikes. It, it went behind the scenes, showed all the qualifying, all the personalities, everything, all the interviews, uh, even adverts with me with Sky and stuff. You know, it, um, it certainly did a lot for, for, for me and, and my sport. It was incredible. It was, everybody was just all about superbikes and no one was interested in GPs in, 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 the, in, in the late 90s. It was all superbikes was, was ruling the world, to be fair. World Superbikes are on their way back, of course, at the moment. But back in the day, Sky was a brand new broadcaster out of London. It had never been seen before and it had never been done like that before. We were lucky enough to be part of that. For those of you old enough to remember me and Jules that were commentating it on the same time as Carl was coming up through. So it worked really, really well for all of us. And uh, Sky couldn't have been happier. Was there anybody that you kind of focused on that you wanted to emulate or were you absolutely your own man? There was nobody that you looked at as style-wise or strategically that you looked at that you wanted to be like or was it just a case of getting your head down and uh, winning those races yeah i mean when i was a, when i was younger i just wanted to be like kenny roberts to be yeah. honest he was he was kind of my hero um kind of wanted to to be him um and, and i'd watch others who were who were faster than me and try and learn from them alter my style to accordingly to you know to, to get to the front really from riding a bit of an awkward style at first and then following others and getting my, you know, my lean angle dead better or my knee out further, that kind of thing. But, um, but no, it was just it was just me being me and me battling with me in my head, to be honest. You know, wanting to win, even when I won sometimes, I still wasn't happy that I could have, could have won better or something, you know. The bike wasn't exactly set up as it should have been, you know, but I still won the race and I was still furious about it, you know. You were a quick, quick, I can't even say it, I've only had two mouthfuls. You were quick on a small bike back in the day, 250, broke your leg, and that kind of forced your hand, really, didn't it, to the bigger bikes? Yeah, I did. I, I kind of spent two years in the wilderness, to be honest, at an age where I should have been, you know, maybe doing Grand Prix or something, like 2021. 20, I just, in 86, I was on 250. I just, I was having a flat, a great year. Um, I just, um, I've done four lap records in four four weekends running at Scarborough, Aberdeer Park, Mallory, Snetterton, finished second at Snetterton, the Super British Championship race behind Andy, Andy Watts. It was, was Andy Watts, yeah. Uh, and um, I got an entry for the British Grand Prix. Um, I had to beg for an entry, to be honest. And they were like, say, look, you're riding a bit wild. Just calm down. Or you're knocking Carlos Lovado off or something like that, you know. And um, it was pissing rain. And I, I, I qualified quite well, to be fair. 26th for the Grand Prix. And uh, I finished 11th in the British Grand Prix. I was like, just turned 21, I think I had. And... Um, I had a meeting that following, following week with Chas Mortimer, who wanted to sign me um, to race in Grand Prix with Neil McKenzie on the Silverstone Armstrong team. And then the next race for me was my home race at Alton Park. And I was like, went there on a, on a Tuesday testing. I remember taking some old tyre that I'd found in the garage from when my dad had, had raced an old slick, but it was a brand new one. Put that in because you could run in slicks in, a, in, in an international and, uh, and crashed on the second lap. Coming out the double right hander on to the back straight. I can't remember what it's called now. Um, druids. Druids. Coming out of druids, it kind of goes over over a rise and it falls away. And I up in the air, came down, and leg was facing the other way. And uh, I thought, shit, that's not good. Um, 
And that was it then. I was in hospital for eight or nine weeks on traction, straight out with all these weights on my leg, not, not, not pinned or anything like that. It was really, really no, anybody could pin it. I mean, it was that close to my knee. It was a compound fracture of my femur. It came out of the, out of the skin and everything, the bone, so it wasn't, wasn't pretty. Um, and that was me struggling then, really, for the year after. I came back and I couldn't get on the bike properly. I'd lost movement in my leg. Uh, to put the seat a bit higher, like more form on the 250, and I was struggling on the Honda, struggling, my, my results weren't that good, I was getting seconds and thirds, and from the guys I were beating easily in 86, and I was still young and learning, I was, I was struggling to beat them, and then the first round of the British Championships came, and it was wet at Mallory Park, I'm dead comfortable in the wet, and I won the race, so I was leading the British Championship, went to the second round, and, and this on the September the 19th, and I broke my leg on August the 19th, the year before, and I crashed in the wet um, at Silverstone, and broke my leg again on lower down, where it had been on traction, they took the pin out, and the bone had got infected, and the skin had healed up, but it was a weak point there, and I just, I had a soft crash, and just snapped again my leg there, so I had to scrape all the bad bone out, and I put me on a... Anybody uh, eating? <laughs> they put me on like an outside fixation, sort of frame scaffold thing, you know, and... So that was, that was into the winter then of 87 and 88. It was like the doctor said, look, have you ever thought about sort of retiring from racing? I'm like, well, you know, I'm going to be a world champion sort of thing. You know, it's what, what you're about, you know. And I just kind of dawned on me then what he said, you know. Um, and then it kind of forced me then to, to go to the bigger bikes, which really were, I wanted, I should have been anywhere really, even at that point, um, to where all the fame, the money, the, the success, you know, the... the the sort of press and that is, is where, where the bigger bikes are and um and i got on the rc30 in 88 and i just thought oh my god i'm comfortable on the bike for the first time in two years you know like they've got more more leg room on the, on the bike and that like, little crown 250 and yeah i just took to it like a duck to water really and I rode pretty much 80 percent that year because i still had my leg that was broken still healing really and uh ended up winning a few races on the rc30 and winning the world championship in my in my in my first year, which was totally unexpected, the TTF One World Championship, um, won the Ulster Grand Prix, beating Joey and all those guys on the RC30, my, my sort of first kind of big race win on, on that, and then followed it up by winning in Italy, in Sicily, a few weeks later, which put one hand on the trophy, just had to finish in the top four or five at Donington, which I did, and uh, won the World Championship. Yeah, it was a surprise to me, as it was to everybody else, really, that um, somebody who almost missed a year out of racing and was looking at the possible retirement because of the injuries to my, my leg, that I ended up winning a, a TTF World title in, in my first year on a, on a superbike. So uh... It's amazing, or it seems amazing to me, that there are so many titles that you've won that most people have overlooked and forgotten about by now. You know, the Manx Grand Prix wins, Endurance World Championship wins, TTF won, like you've said, as a World Championship as well. But if I can just step back a bit before we get too far into the racing and stuff as well, in amongst all this that was going on, you being as aggressive as you are out on racetrack and the like, I want to know the circumstance, how you met the love of your life at the end of the day, in amongst all of this, is Michaela. Um, and that's been an enduring... He's the granddad now, by the way, two times over. We can congratulate him on that. <laughs> but the, the point being is, is that Michaela has been beside you through thick and thin. And I have to say that, from my observations, you've certainly pressed her a couple of times. Yeah, yeah, she's, um, she's a good girl. She's all right, yeah. Um, <laughs> I met... Um, she's lovely. I met her when I was like... 14, she'd have been 13, I think. Uh, she, my sister was a mate of hers at school and um, she kind of brought her home to our house and I thought, oh, she's all right, you know. Um, As you do. I was more interested in motorbikes at that age, to be honest, at 14. Uh, 
But yeah, that was when I met her, and I kind of, I think I kind of fancied them straight away. I was always, but my way of, I'd never admit it. I would like try to sort of pin her down and beat her up and stuff like that, and pull her hair and put soil in her face and throw water in her face, and rub fair liquid in her eyes and stuff. Just, just well, once it did the trick. Yeah, I don't know. I just can't might, recommend it though to anybody. <laughs> Get a wellies and throw them in the stream and stuff when they had the treehouse up, uh, up above, um, above the stream. But yeah, I was just—I uh, guess that was my way of showing affection to her. I wanted, her what did her parents think of this? Uh, well, that was a copper, so <laughs> he, he didn't like the Fogarty name anyway because he had trouble with the Fogarty name with with the incidents with my dad and his brothers in uh, in, uh, in previous sort of years and stuff. Um, but he, he didn't really say much, really. To be fair, um, uh, I don't know. And I didn't see her then for. A, Sort of 14 till I was 21 or 22. I just broke my leg in 87. I just had the pins out, and it was Christmas 87. And I often thought about her, and uh, I remember going to a bar in, in Woodlands Pub in, in Blackburn, and uh, this girl came over, and uh, she said, remember me? And I went, oh, no. I said, Michaela, Bond. She went, I said, no, fucking hell, so I thought you were dead. And <laughs> some chat up line. Cheeky bastard line. Fucking, I was still kind of pushing and fighting with her, and then, you know, and... Uh, but she looks all right. <laughs> I said, you want to go out for dinner tomorrow? You want to have a lunch? So I said, yeah, yeah, I'll go out. So that was it then. Hooked. Um, once I took her out, picked her up in my mum's escort cabriolet. Put the roof down. Um, How very Essex. Yeah. Um, yeah, that was it. So we've been together since Christmas 87. Got married in 91. Had the two little ones. And uh, yeah, still, still, still married. <laughs> Happily married. <laughs> it is happily married. We spoke to her earlier on. Uh, she was wishing him well earlier on. And... The two girls now, I mean, Danielle and Claudia, I, I mean, always difficult, isn't it, when you have children, especially when you live the kind of life you did. You took them with you everywhere. They, they came around to all the racetracks with you and the like. How much of a distraction, if any, was that? It wasn't, to be fair, no. I can't remember now. I, I look back and... I can you know, tell you. It, it wasn't... It's not easy for me to remember. I remember we made, like, a little cot out the... American water home we had uh, like a bath had a little bath in there a shower bath thing and we made that into like a cot at night where Daniel was sleeping there with a fan on um, and yeah Claudia was came a bit later so the night four but no there was there was it wasn't a distraction at all to be fair it really I wasn't. remember being really Mon- good kids at sleeping at that at World night Superbikes well. was a bit that way inclined though wasn't it you, you it was a more of a family up operation in World Superbikes people yeah. brought their wives and brought their children whereas in MotoGP you don't see any of that ever no so it was kind of um, par for the course. But one of the funny stories was, was one day we were all in your motorhome and um, the girls are out in a paddling pool outside. And the next thing, Danielle appears and she said, Dad, Claude's pooped in the pool. <laughs> no, I remember funny that. enough on its own. No, so it, Carl goes out. It might have been me, actually. <laughs> <laughs> Carl goes out and lifts the pool up and just, as you might do at home, and tips the water complete with poop and it goes down the the paddock underneath everyone else's awnings. Don't know where the poop ended up. Was it difficult being a dad um, no. while you were racing at all? Or did you? I mean, that's the one thing about you. You are a very single-minded fellow. You can you focus on one thing, and that's it. Was I did. That... I just focus on the racing. Um, you know, you know, the kids. They kind of they came a lot. A lot of times, say with my mum and dad, and um, there was a, they were a big help, and or Michaela's. Mum and dad, they stay with them. So, but when they, you know, they came, it was it was fine. It was, you know, if they ever got up in the night, McCallum would sort that out. But they never did. They slept really well at night. It was really lucky that way. But. Um 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Now, they love being at the races and stuff, you know, being on the podium with me and that kind of thing. Yeah, it's... Um... So what about the social life in the World Superbike paddock back in the eighties? I mean, what was was it was did you join in in any of that, or was it that was it that typical Carl Fogarty versus Scott Russell type situation? Yeah, it was a bit like that. It was kind of me against the world, really. I was kind of kind of on my own a bit, really. I, I just you know, for on a Sunday night, um, I'd end up probably with James Whitton. We'd go for a pizza and a few beers, and, and that was about it, really. You know. Uh, I think everybody kind of had their little pockets of, of mates or, or not pockets of mates or whatever. You kind of did, did your own thing, really. But, yeah, I was generally just, you know, I was thinking about the next race straight away, you know, when I, when, even after I had a really good weekend and stuff. I was, I was never, I never really switched off, to be fair. It was hard for, it was hard for me mentally, to be honest. It was hard for people around me because I was just living the racing all the time, you know. Was it as political back then as it is now? Was there so much shenanigans going on behind the bike sheds? Um, no, it's a lot more political now. Obviously, it's a lot more. It's crazy now. I mean, God, you can't even go for a rumble strip now without getting penalised with a long lap and all that kind of stuff. And no, it was um, a lot. A lot. I think it was a lot better in my day. I think it was a lot more personalities back in my day. I think the racing was was brilliant. The bikes were, were amazing. The, all, all the factory bikes that you know, all the manufacturers were putting out were really competitive. Um, like many more GP bikes, really, is what they were. Um, the first of them, really. Um, it was um, it was a great time. It was like the golden era of of, of, of superbikes. It's um, from sort of ninety three to to two thousand three. Really, it was an amazing time to be racing. So about the money, was there plenty of money about back then? I did all right. Had a few <laughs> quid. I did all right. Because <laughs> you, despite the fact that you play it down a fair bit business wise, you um, you moved into other areas that have earned you really really good money. I mean, you've done quite well out of that. Was there somebody in the background that? You know, there was the Harris Burnett's who looked after the likes of Wayne Gardner and people like that. The, you know, management that were hiding away doing the slippery stuff where we never saw. Did you have anybody like that behind you? Yeah, I did, a good financial guy um, from Blackburn. Yeah, he was, he was a good mate of mine and still is. Uh, yeah, he kind of advised me kind of what to do, where to put the money and stuff like that, really. Because you decided to pay the tax in the UK. You didn't do did, the yeah. off, 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 off overseas thing, did you? No, we thought about it. Kind of briefly going to the Alamander or Monaco or that, but I just thought, oh, I just can't, I can't do it. We've got two girls. I just want them to be brought up in what I call normal surroundings and kind of go to school and and, and kind of you know be sort of safe and, and secure that way. Really, not be in the Alamander or Monaco or something. I didn't really 
Uh, that's kind of bit the bullet and sort of paid the tax in. But there were kind of loopholes back then. They were, if you invested it and stuff and we, the finances, you could save a bit of money on tax and stuff. So we kind of did what we could do, really. I think there are a lot of people quite glad that you did stay in this country because you used to have some awesome parties. There's no doubt about that up at your house. <laughs> that was all when I finished racing, though, to be fair. Well, I don't know. I can remember one or two when you were still at it a little bit. But uh, And I'm thinking... The kids always had lots of friends around and like your house is a, a buzzing kind of a place. Mikaela always had kids around similar ages to your to your to your daughters. Yeah, I mean, it still is true. It's still, still a pretty pretty much open house now. Um the girls have, have kind of left home, but they're not really they're still around pretty much every day because Mikaela always cooks, she's an amazing cook, and the, the, the kids don't cook, so they're always around and there's four dogs at our house. It's just it's just it's just mad really. If I need to do a TV show at home with the foggies, it'd be quite funny to be fair, but um <laughs> Yeah, they're, they're both girls are generally at our house a lot, really, and it's an old house, and they've got their boyfriends that are husbands now, with, in, in Danielle's case, so, uh, yeah, it's all good. He's still got animals called after uh, old racers that you used to race against. You had two Vietnamese pot-bellied pigs. I did, yeah. What were they called again? Scott and Aaron. Oh. <laughs> yeah, they weren't too happy about it. But, Aaron Slight. Uh, nobody, yeah. nobody liked him. <laughs> um, no, we've got nothing now. Um, I used to have ends and stuff, but the fox ended all that on a few a couple of years ago, but just got the dogs, and that, that's it, really. We've got, we've got like, a bit land and stuff and often thought about going a bit of a small holding again but i don't know if it can be asked to be honest i, don't know. Uh, I can't imagine yeah diy is not your um spec really is it it used to be i've kind of lost interest in diy now too i don't know i used to be able to do a few good few jobs around the house and stuff and you know fix the fencing outside and mow the lawn but i can't be really asked with it all now yeah. it's because you've got staff you see yeah. i've got, got staff a man who does what about bikes? I mean, I suppose that begs the question as well. Did you ever get involved in, in working on your bikes at all? Did you ever get, you know, all of us generally when we come up through racing have, have, have got to get our hands dirty. I How did, was that? I did with the two strokes, yeah. Once you got to four, four strokes, um, my head was gone then. I just, you know, I didn't understand them, still don't understand how they work. Um, but with two strokes, yeah, we was, I was stripping down, changing the piston rings, that kind of stuff, yeah. I would uh, I would get involved with the with two strokes, yeah. And mechanics, you um, I have to say that your mechanics were just about as colourful as you were back in the day. I'm thinking of Slick, good old Anthony Bass. Um, did you uh, Were you involved in hiring those guys or did uh, somebody else do that for you? No, I, I, I wanted Slick to work for me, uh, yeah. I, I knew him through when he worked for Steve Islop and I got on really well with him and he was, and he was a good guy to, to have and uh, I wanted him at Decassian with Raymond Roche and I got him um, and he, he obviously came with me in World Superbikes. I, I, I had a few issues to be honest with, with, with Slick, with, with the Italians and he kind of always, he, he made it quite clear that he didn't work for them, he worked for me, you know, um, he made sure I was right, he wasn't too bothered about being too PC with, you know, Virginia Ferrari or or David Tornotz or anything like that, he would, you know, and I, I had to fight to keep him in the job to be fair most years and then when I took him to Honda, Honda said look, no, we can't cope with this guy. He's just he's just not doing anything right at all. He's just not paying attention to, to anything, not being a team player. So he was sacked at the second round at Donington. And uh, and Nick Goodison then, who was my mechanic for, for the rest of the Honda, Honda days. And I got him back when he went to Ducati in 97. I had to fight to keep him in 98. In 99, he, he kind of changed a little bit. He'd come, come around a little bit to the ways of like the telemetry guy and that kind of people. You know, he was... Because he's still a hands-on mechanic slick with screwdrivers and spanners and that kind of thing. You know, he was... Never really gone to the the way it is now. You plug your your laptop in now and press a, a few keypads, and that's how you change the bike these days, don't you? You don't you don't alter it with a screwdriver anymore or a spanner. So um, I don't know how he's getting on now. I don't know, but he's pretty, he still he still tunes engines for the sidecar lads and six hundred guys and, and the Alaman and stuff. So um, he's he's getting bigger and all. I was going to say he's huge. <laughs> Bertie, you got competition. <laughs>
exactly. <laughs> when you were you working in the maelstrom that was World Superbike back in the day, I mean, did anything you know out of the, the, the competition, the big competition you had with Scott Russell, for for instance? I mean, that was a massive fight back in the days. I mean, were you guys friends or were you enemies off track? Um, I just I just say really, we we're, were definitely enemies in the press and the build up to a race and. In that race, we were really enemies. But then, generally on a Sunday night, we, you know, we'd kind of maybe see him and stuff and have a few beers and, a, like I say, a pizza in, in, in Assen or something like that, or, or Monza or a Misano. So it wasn't really that much hatred, I don't think. It was more played out for the media, really. Uh, we, the media would want quotes for us before every race. And I, I'd say, it, it, Scott says something like, oh, I'm just cruising, I'll, I'll beat Foggy, no worries at all, he's, he's not that good. And I'd say it's time to spank the yank, that kind of thing, and whatever. So it was it was mainly for um, for the media, really. It was just I don't know if we actually believed it or not, but they were like two boxes before a fight, the way they built it up, you know. And, uh, yeah, it's, it, people remember that now and look back on it and, uh, and miss it, really, because it's not really like that. Everybody loves each other, don't they, now, since the Rossi era. It's all, everybody... Loves everybody and smiles, and you know, they all go cycling together and rock climbing together, whatever else they do. I don't know, but um, whatever else, back in my day, you know, everyone just kind of did their own thing, really. Did anything get at you at all? I mean, particularly outside, were there any influences from outside? I mean, I'm thinking specifically of well, actually, a very sad just dropped into my head when you've had your swimming pool filled in because there was a, a youngster that, that unfortunately I even remember her name actually after all these years, Hannah, who, who drowned in your, in your swimming pool. Um, Again, one of these kids' parties at home, and Michaela was at home looking after them all. And uh, you won at Hockenheim that weekend. Yeah, that oh, was. Oh no, it was. It was Nurburgring. Yeah, it was. Yeah, um, I was away. I was I was away riding riding up in the lakes. And I kind of got a, got the phone call that a <clears throat> little girl fell in the pool and she passed away, and it was it was hard because they were friends of ours. Um, I remember her dad used to said, "Look, just." Just go and win the next race for her, and it was like kind of the most important race. Kind of, I felt at, at that time really, I had to win that race, that first race, and I did at Nurburgring. It was quite an eventful first race, really. I was I qualified on pole position, and I didn't get a great start. And I was coming through, and then whatever was in my way kind of got cleared out of the way. There was a bit of an oil flag incident going into turn one, and I think Colin was crashed, and somebody else crashed, and it kind of paved the way for me. Uh, to win the race and I won it and I didn't really celebrate or anything like that and I remember getting a gold uh, laurel wreath you never got gold laurel wreaths you never got laurel wreaths you got them in the 60s I think the 70s you never got them don't look in, at me in, <laughs> you never got them in the 90s and I got this gold laurel wreath and I, I kind of gave it to um, gave it to a dad you know um, so you know that's kind of for Hannah sort of thing um, but yeah it was it was, it was a tough time yeah, it was it really is yeah. one of the things that I think is almost a contradiction in you is that um any of these famous parties that Carl's had at his house, you know, it was, it's almost a, it's almost like you're conflicted when you go there because you've got your, your really old mates that you went to school with. And then you've got the superstar mates that have now moved in on your life a little bit. But yeah, I've always observed you kind of gravitating towards your oldest mates. Is that how you feel? Yeah, my old mates are the, the best. I, I, you know, definitely. I, I, don't, I don't really have many sort of famous friends at all. Really. I, I don't, I've never really been like that that way at all. And I've never, I mean, if they came to my party, they weren't invited. They probably just get crashed. No, my mates are my mates from years and years ago. And in fact, we're, we're all going to Spain next week on, on the trail bikes, four days, sorry, on, on the adventure bikes, doing three or four days riding in the, 
Sierra Nevada and that with, with a couple of lads uh, who have been mates for years. So uh, nah, the, the old mates are, are the best ones, really. Yeah, definitely. One of the stories I seem to remember, I don't even know if he's still your mate, but I'm, I'm going back years and years, is a fellow called Howie, Howard. Howard, yeah. And he got long hair and he was a bit crazy and looked a bit out of control. Did you buy him a tractor for his birthday? Yeah, I did buy him a tractor, yeah. Helped him out a bit, yeah, I did, yeah. Um, he was, a, yeah, he's still one of my best mates, even though I've not seen him for about two years. I was just a, I, I could spend the whole night talking about Howard. He's just a farmer that, he doesn't exist, to be honest. He's just, everything's been cashed with him all his life, and he doesn't exist on the register at all. I don't know how he's going to go on when he, you know, <laughs> and when things happen in the future, but, uh, no, he's, he's just a, Track part of the case, and he looked really good looking lad. He is he's long blonde, uh, he's probably out now, it's long grayer now. But and he was a really good footballer, to be fair, he really was good. He should have been center forward for, for, for England or whatever. He was that good. He went to Man City at 12 years old. And I mean, in the, in the 70s, then when he would have gone, there were a lot of issues at City. Then I think a lot of a lot of clubs were, were bullying and that kind of stuff, and you know, paedophiles, all that kind of shit. And I, I think he came home crying, he just something had pissed him off, and something upset him. And that really didn't really kick a football after that for a while. And he was so good, he was really good. I mean, there's one or two other lads who met it in, in our in my class at school, met it, he played for Blackburn Rovers and Sheffield and Bolton, and he were better than them. And he, you know, he, uh, yeah, he just grew up on a farm, basically. He was just a farm lad. He was just a big, strong lad and uh, was really good at football. But, uh, yeah, he just uh, loves his farming now and sheep and bailing hay and stuff like that. <laughs> a few pints at most nights. Has he still got your tractor? <laughs> yeah, he's probably, no, he's probably got, got rid of it now. I've got a new one, I guess. But, uh, yeah, yeah, I helped him out, yeah, definitely. So, I mean, like, obviously you've risen up from, from fairly humble beginnings with your mum and dad. But, I mean, as you went through that fame phase, if you like, and started to earn a few quid, which you have, I don't think you could deny that, even to us. Um, did you find people coming out of the woodwork that were needed help, or wanted help, that tried to twist your arm for a bit of help? Uh, not really, no, I didn't, no, no. They obviously knew you wouldn't give them anything. Yeah, obviously, yeah, definitely. Um, no, I didn't. Um, I had a bit of an issue with my uncle, Uncle Brian. Oh, yeah. Um, he, was, he was starting selling merchandise when he couldn't, he wasn't supposed to be. Uh, and I'm trying to say, say, look, you can't do this. I'm called Fogarty. My name's Fogarty. I'm selling stuff with, with name. And I can't I've got a contract with, with people and they're going mad at you. And they got quite messy and stuff at one point. And uh, I fell out with him for quite a few years to be fair. And we've met up obviously since, but he sadly died a few years ago. Um, but yeah, he was he was a character. Was Brian? He was a right rogue. He was lovable rogue. He was was Brian. But uh, I, that was the only time really I had uh, had a bit of trouble with this guest. It does seem to get a little bit loose in the Fogarty household sometimes. There's no doubt about it. <laughs> so what about um, as you moved on through into superstardom? I want to go to the racing after after the break of our can. So we'll cover the, the most of the racing and the like from there as well. But what other parts in that early life really stood out for you? What what is outside of racing? What else stood out for you? Was there anything, your parents, dog, other girlfriends that we don't know about that you could admit to, bearing in mind we're being taped? Um, nothing really. It was just it was just bikes. I just wanted to ride my bike in the field when I got home from school, that kind of thing. And Were there any other hobbies that you had as well? Or? No, I played a bit of football at school, but when we got beat 2-1, I, I took it really badly and the rest of the team didn't seem that bothered. I thought... I'm not meant to be in a team sport because I, I, I can't stand this. We was lost and everyone's like, not bothered, you know. It was pissing me right off that we'd lost. And I'd scored a first goal and we got beat 2-1 by another school. And, yeah, it was good. I was devastated. I didn't want to play again after that because the rest of the team didn't pull the socks up and, and perform. Um, 
But for me, it was just it was just wanting to be brought up around bikes with my dad and stuff. I just the TT was a big thing really for me. I wanted to, I really wanted to win the TT. Well, you won three Manxes, didn't you? I won one Manx. Oh, I thought you won um, three. There you I won, go. Sorry, Bertie, you got that wrong. <laughs> I won uh, I won the newcomers, the Manx newcomers, and I finished third in the open race and set the fastest lap my first year there. But um, no, I wanted to win the TT and then move on to the world. I wanted to be that guy like Hill or. or or Agassiz that could win the TT and then go on to be a world champion on the short circuit. Because I'm probably, probably, well, I am the last guy to do that and probably will be for, for, for the foreseeable future. I don't see anyone winning the TT and going on to be a, a world champion on the short circuits um, at the moment. Was there a plan B? Forklift truck driver. Had you got that my one dad, in the bank? <laughs> that was about it, really. Um, I just worked for my dad on the forklift truck or whatever, just stacking up... Um, steel girders or whatever, I don't know, it's, uh, that was it really, I wasn't, I was just so determined, I mean, I look back now, I think, I was so lucky in a lot of ways, even though, you know, I give it everything I, I got, you know, with the injuries and, and stuff, and, you know, they just got a few lucky breaks, I guess, and unlucky breaks as well with my leg, but, you know, there wasn't really a plan B at all, I was just always felt like, you know, I was just going to win races, and the money would take care of itself, and uh, that's kind of pretty much what happened, really, uh, to be fair. Either on a professional or on a personal note, any regrets particularly? I mean, I was thinking of your book. You were quite um, strong in your book, I remember. I don't know. I've never read it. <laughs> I forget I've learned. Um, I, I wasn't in a good place when I did the book, to be fair. I really wasn't. It was just when I was going through family issues. I've just won the World Championship again for the fourth time. And I didn't. I just felt like I, I'd almost had enough of racing, you know, the pressure and to go out and win again and that winter. 99 to 2000, I wanted to get on with, I like my dad over the, the Brian thing. And I wrote the book and I kind of was very angry and animated when I did the book, really. And I said stuff that I wish I'd probably not said, to be fair. Um, but I don't regret it. No, it's, it's, it is, it's me. It's, it's how I was. Um, I think the only regret I have, really, in racing is, is signing for Honda. <laughs> when, I, when I should never have broke up a winning team on this beautiful bike, 916. Um, I left it in 95 and went to Honda, really, um, for the money, to be honest. And I felt like the bike was, was, was good. It was fast. It was faster than my Ducati, which is one of the reasons I thought I'd go there. Um, but I, I, I didn't feel right when I was there. Straight away, I, I'd almost resigned myself to the fact that I wasn't going to win the World Championship even before I rode the bike. I remember saying to Mikhail, I said, you know, I'll win a few races here, but I, don't, I won't win. I think I might finish it top five. And I was, like, almost happy at was saying that, which is... Somewhat like me, I don't know why I kind of had that attitude, that mental attitude then. That I just kind of almost resigned myself to the fact that I wasn't really going to win on it. wasn't that bothered. It was, it was bizarre, really. Was that all you, or was it something to do with the team? or the? It was probably more, more me, really. The team, I, I should have done better. I could have, I, I just couldn't be bothered with it, really. I, couldn't, I just couldn't figure out why I was losing grip mid-corner on the lean angle. Because my, my style was riding, different riding than Aaron's. He would kind of moor in and out. I was coming a little bit faster off the brakes and running through the corners and carry the lean angle, the corner speed that I did on the casting. I could never carry it. It was just breaking traction all the time in a lot of corners. On some circuits, it would work great. Like at Assen, it would great. I wouldn't win both races. And then a week after, it was Albacete, where I could really ride really well. Then I was struggling to get in the top five, you know. And... And so, by breaking up a winning team, which I had won the World Championship for sure in 96 on the Ducati, I know, but there's no question of that. Um, but I left it, and 
and didn't win the World Championship on the Honda. I finished fourth. I went down to the last race of the year. I could still have won it, mathematically. Four of us could win it. I was like 32 points behind, but it was, just, it was a long gap. And uh, I came out and finished fourth and went back to Ducati. And then when I'd gone back, things had changed. Everybody had, had gone, like the suspension guy had gone, the engine guy had gone. The bike felt, it felt like a Honda. It felt like, it felt difficult to ride. It was, it was, the throttle was snappy. It was, it, I think it had gone to one injector system on it and that didn't help me. And, the, fight, the bike felt big and bulky for some reason. And then we never, we never dawned on us until the year after when they said, the tank's a lot higher up than what you remember from the 95. I go, oh, fuck's sake, why don't you tell me? Why, why can't we not get the tank a lot lower? I can get off the bike in the corners and that then. And we changed the tank and stuff for, for 98 or 99. And suddenly it was, it was back again. I was, you know, back winning races and back winning the World Championship. But it, that leaving Ducati and breaking up a winning team, which I was so dominant on in 95, cost me two world titles by breaking that up and going to Honda for what I thought was a, a better looking team because um, it was well organised, well run. I got a, I got a, I got a Honda Prelude car for free and uh, not was worth bragging about. And I got a free motocross bike as well. It was like things like that that kind of maybe kind of you know, my eyes lights up a little bit, you know. And uh, But yeah, when the racing came, I just wasn't, I wasn't 100% and the, the team wasn't 100% with me really, to be fair. And we just have, have, have flashes of brilliance that year and then rest time sort of made it mediocre really. It was uh, not really like me at all. And when I went back to the Ducati the year after, I was really determined to win. I rode really hard in 97. I rode too hard. I crashed three or four times out of winning positions. I was leading into Brands, I crashed. Um, led at um, I think Indonesia, I crashed. I can't remember, two or three crashes. Albacete, I crashed. And uh, gifted the championship to um, my good friend and close rival, uh, John Kaczynski, <laughs> my best mate. <laughs> Anybody know all the inside line on John Kaczynski? He was actually mad, wasn't he? Do you know he's a multi-multi-millionaire real estate man yeah, now I've in uh, California? He's a very, very clever bloke, but he was actually, there was something not right with him. No, which I, he said about you. Yeah, yeah, no, we both clashed pretty much from the word go. Really, he didn't like me, I didn't like him. And, it was like the same old thing again, me and an American, you know, another American to hate and, uh, and to have as a rival. It was, um, I think racing's missing that nowadays, don't you folks? I mean, it's a situation where you don't seem to have that kind of rivalry anymore. The, 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 the Marquez versus Valentino Rossi type situation, whichever camp you're actually in, is a good thing for the sport half the time. Did you enjoy that side of it, that kind of I hate you kind of a attitude? I don't think I did, no. It, was just, it, it just seemed to come naturally to me just to hate people and... And say things about them and just and then have to go out and try and beat them. I don't know why I did it. I'm certainly saying now, look back now, because you get reminded of stuff you said on you know, YouTube and, and you know social media and stuff, and people send you clips. You remember this? And like, fucking, why did I set out? And, you know, and why did I just get your mouth shut and just get on with the races? And uh, yeah, it was. But it's just how it was. It was my makeup, and it was just you know. Um, and from a broadcast yeah. point of view, it, it, like, it was gold. Loved it, yeah. it was absolute gold. There's no doubt about yeah. that. We'll take a break then and have a beer in the uh, in the bar. Thank you very much for your attention here at the Stirrup Cup. Cheers. <sighs> Cheers, guys. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.